0: Well, as is often the case this time of year, kids are out of school and and uh, have more time, and so different families have different ways of occupying uh, the time and keeping the attention of kids. and And one of the ways that that often happens with is with games and board games. Puzzles are real big in our in our family, but but board games. We play games together. We we were in Colorado for Thanksgiving. We tried a new game, and I don't, I just, I don't remember the name, I've already forgotten the name again, but it's one of these strategy games that are really popular right now, and, and, and I, I, I can enjoy them, but I don't like the process of learning them. I mean, they're, they're so, the instructions are so long and detailed, and so, it said on the box it was gonna be a, you know, that, I like how they do that now. It tells you how long the average gameplay is, 30 minutes, that's, right up my alley i don't like these two three hour board games but um 30 minutes i can do that but it took us 20-25 minutes just to begin to read through the instructions and to try to understand what was going on and i I couldn't i couldn't take it anymore we never even played we sat there and 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 tried to understand and we were confused and then we just started laughing because the the instructions were so ridiculous and um, and 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 again, we came kind of came back to the point. What's the point? What's the? What are we trying to do with this game? Okay, I, how all these pieces move, and what these cards mean, and how these resources are used. Okay, whatever. But what's the point? And and um, it's it is so important. It's not when you play a game, you don't just want to know what to do, what how the pieces move, and all of that. You need to know why. What's the objective of the game? Well, as we enter into this Christmas season it's always the case that that the that, that, that we're flooded with reminders not as many as we used to have, but we're still flooded with reminders of the what of Christmas. Reminding we have nativity scenes that we see even in in the public square and, and we have Christmas carols, even in you know, shopping malls that are that, that we still hear that remind us of what what happened. Um, and and how things came to pass with Jesus' birth, but but more often than not, the 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 why of Christmas tends to be a little more veiled. What's the point? What's, what was the objective in Jesus coming into the world? The what is very important. It's a very important to remember that the the account of Jesus' birth is not fiction. Jesus really was born in time and space history. These events really did come to pass as they're recorded. And so we, we need to hold on to the what and not lose that and think that that's unimportant. It's some spiritual meaning of the incarnation. That's what's really important. No, the what is necessary, but we also have to remember the why that this, this true earthly story has a real heavenly purpose. God had intention. He had an objective. He had a point in sending Jesus into this world, this, this, there was a point to it all and it's in a point that we cannot forget. And so what we want to see is, is the title of my sermon is trying to cleverly communicate is the why in the manger. Why? What, what, what was God doing? The, the what and the why of Christmas we have in Galatians 4, they're fused together wonderfully. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. And We'll get more attention to the why, but let's look at the what. And so look in Galatians chapter 4 again, verse 4. Just look there with me. First we see the what. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the what. Now the why. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul's writing about the what and the why of Christmas, but he's He's, and he's doing so in a letter. This is the letter to the churches um, in in the Galatian region there. And so, but it's not a Christmas letter as we think. It's not exclusively, again, focused on Christmas. He's not, he's not including pictures of his recent travels around the Mediterranean or anything like that, like we've been able to see from Nelson and Jody. And, uh, and so it's not that kind of, uh, kind of Christmas letter or anything like that. He's not, it's not a, He's not writing to remind the Galatians of the reason for the season or anything like that. And that just kind of correcting a tendency in the culture of his day that, that over-commercialized Christmas. And he's, he's kind of writing an anti-commercialization you know, uh, of Christmas letter. That's not, that's not what this letter is about. It's not a Christmas letter. So why is Paul then writing about Jesus' birth? Why is he writing about the Incarnation? What happened and why he came? Well, as we'll see, it's because what he, the, the thrust of the letter of Galatians is Paul's telling this church that, and these churches that they need this radical restart in the way that they're thinking about the Christian life. That's what Galatians is all about. You have, you know, your computer, your phone, and it starts getting slow and glitchy and keeps, you know, messing up and error messages and things aren't opening right. And you get frustrated and you finally break down, last resort, call tech support and see if they can help me, help me get this figured out. What's the first thing they're always going to tell you? Have you restarted it? And I always, I'm always like, ah, oh, no, I should know this by now. But so, well, so do a hard reset on it and see if that fixes it. And oftentimes it does. And well, this is Paul telling the Galatian Christians, you need a hard reset. That's what Galatians is about. And it's a it's kind of a harsh letter. It's abrupt. And, and we'll see just a quick survey of this letter shows this is not some tame Christmas letter. I hope this isn't how you write Christmas letters, uh, because just a quick scan of this in chapter one, verse six. He says, I am astonished by you. And that's not like, whoa, you're so wonderful. No, we'll see. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Chapter three, verse one, verse three of chapter three. Are you so foolish? He goes on in verse nine of chapter four. How can you turn back? Verse twenty, the same chapter, I am perplexed about you. So this is some harsh words for these believers in these Galatian churches. What is Paul so worked up about? Is he is he overreacting a little bit here to situation there in these churches? Let me just give you the context. We're going to get to the Christmas part. Just hang with me because it's important. I think that's the beauty of this passage is going to come out in understanding the setting. But the context in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Look there with me. And the Galatian Christians there that Paul is writing to. They knew that according to Galatians 2 16. A person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. They knew that. They had, as it goes on, believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, the, the Galatian Christians believe that. If they had not believed that, they wouldn't be Galatian Christians. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus Christ. Faith in Him alone, not by works of the law. And so so what is it then that has Paul so up in arms with the Galatian believers here? Well, having been saved or justified, that's the word he uses here, by faith alone, in Christ alone, they were now going back to law-keeping as the basis for their standing before God. Paul's just pulling... I, this is a bad illustration for me. <laughs> pulling hair. Let's just say he has hair. And though he actually said he was balding, but, uh, he's, he's pulling what Harry has left out. Trying to, trying to understand this. And he, so he writes this really powerful letter. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1 that they deserted the true gospel and turned to a different one. Which he says is really not another one. With chapter 3, verse 3, he says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, by grace, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by works, by the things you do? Chapter 4 verse 9, he says they're making, you're making yourselves slaves again. Why are you doing this? They're abandoning the gospel of grace, going back to the law as a means of their security and acceptance before God. And that's an awful way to live. That's an awful way to live. It's, it's an existence characterized by many things. It's characterized by fear. Just, there's no assurance. There's no acceptance before God. No feeling of just being warmly loved by God. There's, there's, it's, it leads to, often to hypocrisy. There's, it becomes more about appearing holy before other people than it is about really being holy and pleasing to God because because if we if we're really honest, the, the, the truest and the, the worst sins of our lives are of our lives are not those external things that everybody knows about. It's the stuff inside. It's the things we think. It's the things we want. We don't know. Other people don't even know. But God knows and we know. And so it's, it's minimization of sin. And so it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to disunity. The church is then divided up oftentimes. And you see this in some of the New Testament letters between kind of the haves and the have-nots, the overachievers who, and, and then the underachievers, the slackers. It often leads to just this duty-bound version of Christianity. It's just boiled down to just kind of passionless, passionless rule following and no vitality in relationship. It leads to joylessness. The, the, the Christian life becomes wearisome. And it's just, just tolerable at best. Well, they, they, this, is, this is kind of the situation that's developing there in these churches. And so they develop this distorted view of the gospel, of, of life, of, of the Christian life, of the law. And so Paul's writing and he's saying, Let, let's start over. Lesson number one. This is, gentlemen, this is the gospel. This is, this is what it's all about. This is who you are. This is why Jesus came in the very first place. That's what Paul's doing, doing in the Galatian letter here. Hitting reset. Just go back to the beginning. This is the gospel. And so in that vein, Paul asks in chapter 3 verse 19, we're getting close to our text now, because they're wondering this. Okay, if we're not if it's not law, keep, law keeping, that's the, that's the basis of my acceptance and standing before God and continued approval before God, then why why the law then? And he answers that question. You look down at verse twenty four. We're just gonna have to get quick here. But verse twenty four, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer a guardian. uh, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And so the law is never, it was never intended by God to make us right before Him, but to show us our sin, to prepare us for Christ. It was a guardian until Christ came. And it goes on in chapter 4, again, we're in our passage now, verse 1. I mean, he says, he's saying, let me clarify what I'm talking about here. That the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the first thing Paul does is he reminds them who they were before Christ. And what was their condition? Look at the words. It's held captive. Under, imprisoned, slave, enslaved. And seeking to to achieve forgiveness from God, acceptance by God, or, uh, or justification before God on the basis of our works through our obedience to God is a form of bondage, it's enslavement. And So Paul asks, why would you want to go back there? Why would you want to go back there? Why do you want to return to slavery? The law of God That was never its intention. Why go back and shackle yourself. Through a system of bondage. Trying to earn God's favor by rule following. And so we were slaves. He's reminding them. And when we were in that hopeless condition. God acted. God acted. But when the fullness of time had come. Verse 4. When time was. Was full. You you know we have these flood warnings occasionally. and We have these torrential rains, and and you'll the Flint River often is is in is in that flood warning zone for our area. We see those pop up, and it tells you what the flood stage is, and it's expected to rise, you know, to this 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 number of 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 inches or a half an inch even above flood stage. It doesn't take much to cause damage when particularly if you got a levee system or something like that. You Just an inch over and it's, it can be, it can be awful. And so here, it's just, just when time was full, when everything was peaked, when, when we were deeply enslaved to sin under the curse of the law, when we were at our greatest point of need, God took action. When the fullness of time had come, God, God sent forth His Son. He took the initiative. He intervened. He sent his son. We were were not looking for God. We were not reaching for Him or or clawing after Him. No, God intervened and God moved towards us. That's what the message of Christmas is not about people getting their act together and cleaning up their lives and getting a fresh start and moving towards God. No, the message of Christmas and the incarnation is that God has moved towards man. He came to us. He this this the offended god himself an infinite love and compassion moves towards moves towards us he breaks the silence moves towards man we we, we we he he comes to bless those who shake their fist at him in anger and rage against him so when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of woman born under the law and what the, what he's saying is he's the, He's, he's the only one qualified to be our Savior. He's fully God. He's fully human. He's fully righteous. He, he's God's Son. Fully God. He, he, the only begotten Son of God. We talked about this last week. He's sent from heaven. He's not created. And so He's he's fully God. And He had to be fully God in order for His sacrifice to be of infinite worth and to atone for sin. And He's fully human. Born of woman. He had to be fully Man, In order to represent us, to represent mankind, to take the penalty for our sin upon himself, to be our substitute. He had to be fully man. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, like us, in every respect, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Fully God, fully human, and then fully righteous. He was born under the law. He willingly subjected himself to God's law, even though he was God. Tempted as we are in all things, scriptures say, and yet without sin. Perfectly obedient to the law. So he had to be like us, born of woman. He had to be completely unlike us, though. Born of son of God, perfectly fulfilling God's law. So that's the what. So when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Born of woman. Born under the law. Now the why. To redeem those under the law. So that. We might receive adoption. As sons. That's why Jesus came. This is the purpose of his birth. To redeem us. So that we might be adopted. Redemption. For adoption. God's purpose in sending his son to earth. Is ultimately. For our adoption as his children, that to adopt us is just see the logic of this verse. To to adopt us, which is the end goal, he had to redeem us, and to redeem us, he had to send his son. That's what he, that's the logic of this verse. He, there had to be Christmas in order to get to the objective, to the point of it all, which is our adoption as his sons. And so, in the remainder of our time, I want to focus in on that theme of adoption as being central to understanding the purpose of the Incarnation, the very reason for our Christmas celebration, the meaning really of Christianity. And so I I just thought it would be a timely opportunity. We have two families pursuing adoption, and here we enter into the Christmas season. They're getting close, and so I just thought it would be a good way to kind of wed our time together, to think about adoption, God's adoption of us, and and as we, as we come alongside these families that are pursuing this. So, I, I want to... There's a quote will be on the screen from J.I. Packer. who's I just, just want to read it and it will stand on its own. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught. Everything that is distinctly, distinctively Christian. Is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And so with that in mind. I just say we need a better grasp of adoption. Y'all, we need to come back to this often. And so, just three, three statements. Makes a little application, and then, we'll, then we're going to go to the table. First statement is this. is that adoption is distinct from, yet dependent upon justification. It's distinct from, it's not the same as, so they're not equal. It's not a synonym for justification. To redeem is different than to, do, to adopt, but they're related, and one is dependent upon the other. So, justification, justification, of which redemption in our text is a part of, it's 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 the the scene is the courtroom. It's is it's legal forensic language here. Has to do with law, with a with a judge, with a violation, with a defendant, with a verdict, with a sentence. That's the idea of justification. To redeem those who were under the law. <clears throat> legal requirement. So that's that's justification. It's courtroom. Then there's adoption. It's family. That's the scene. That's the setting. And the, the, the picture you need to have in mind. They're, and they're different. So they're different. But they're, but they're not unrelated. Adoption's dependent upon justification. Let me illustrate this for you. There you stand. In the high court of heaven. You, 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 you appear. and you're, You've been accused. And you stand before the judge of all the earth. God himself. This judge who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, who, who knows absolutely everything there is to know about you. And you can go to a, you can be a defendant in the human court system and you can pull the wool over the eyes of the judge and of juries. But you can't pull the wool over God. Over the eyes of God. That that He can peer right through you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He knows your intentions. He knows your motives. He knows your words. He sees everything that that, that you do. He knows it all. Even things you do in secret. So when you you stand guilty. Guilty as charged. He knows it. You know it. And, And the list of charges against you is long. I mean as far as the eye can see. And the clerk of the court reads out those charges and it takes a long time. And, and some are humiliating. Some are embarrassing. Some are just downright disgusting and shameful. These charges are read against you. And, and there's the perfect judge in holiness and splendor that you're standing before. As these charges are being read, and you know you're guilty, you know you're condemned, you know you've broken every single point of God's law, you know that the sword of justice rightly should fall upon you. And just as the judge is about to say, guilty is charged, the sentence is eternal damnation. There's someone who stands up in the courtroom. You have you have a representative, you have an advocate. And he stands up and says, Judge, wait. I have perfectly fulfilled the law in his place and I have, I have paid the penalty for all of his crimes by dying in his place. And so as his substitute, I can say before the high court of heaven that this man is justified. He's declared righteous. I've, I've paid for it. Galatians chapter three verse thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. First, Romans three verse three and four says, "For God is done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us." We have an advocate. So the judge, instead of saying guilty as charged, sentenced to eternal death, now pounds the gavel and, gavel and says, no condemnation. No condemnation. Free, pardoned, forgiven, deemed, clothed in righteousness that surpasses, that, that, that meets divine scrutiny. His penalty is paid in full. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? That's justification. The great reformer Martin Luther. I think this is on the screen too. I just love this quote. But he, he says along these lines. The devil will continually come to you and say. You are a great sinner. And you are to say to him. Yes I am. What of it? I have one who paid the penalty for all my sins. And the devil will come to you and say. You have no righteousness of your own to plead. And you were to say, You're right, what of it? I am clothed in another's righteousness that is perfected that is perfect before God. That's justification. And until you understand justification like that, you don't understand justification. And so so that's 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 part of it. So Galatians four, verse four and five but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's that's it. So there's the judge, transcendent, holy, perfect, omniscient, clothed in absolute majesty and splendor. And after he pounds the gavel and says, not guilty, not condemned, pardoned of all his crimes, he stands up, takes his judge's robes off, and he walks around to the front of the bench to the justified sinner, sinner. And he embraces him, not as a judge, but as a father. Because right after he signed the, the the verdict, not guilty, he turned that over and he signed the adoption papers and he took you as his own. That's the picture. Isn't that beautiful. That's that's what Galatians four is talking about. As judge, he redeems. As father, he. Before we could be adopted as sons, we had to be redeemed, justified. God won't adopt felons, and we were despicable felons. When God initiated His plan to adopt us as His children, we weren't some cute little sympathetic uh, orphans that that we you know God saw on a website or something like that. We were we were awful. We we were God haters, God ignoring, God defying. God hating enemies of our Maker, shaking our fists at Him. There's nothing attractive in us that would draw God to us. But in love, He moved towards us. He redeemed us so that He could adopt us as His own. That's great. That's first thing. Second thing, will be, these will be quicker. Therefore, adoption is an even greater privilege than, than justification. As wonderful a truth as justification is, and it is, and we talk a lot about that, Adoption is even better. It's not that we're just no longer slaves, but now we're, we positively say you're sons. When the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. J.I. Packer says along these lines, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved for and cared for by God the Father is greater. We're, there's a closeness that should characterize and does characterize our relationship with God and, and it should characterize the experience of our relationship with God. Does it characterize yours? Or do you only think of God in terms of right standing and this judicial acceptance? And we, we ought to re- revel in that and rejoice in that, but do you think of God as filled with affection for you as a loving father? Do You view God like that. Think about it. How, how do you picture... God, or do you do you do, do you do you do you view him as someone desiring to be close to you? Does it make you uneasy to say these words? God loves me. He really, 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 really loves me, messed up as I am. Or do you think more often that God just kind of tolerates you? He just kind of puts up with you. If, you, if that's how you think, you don't get it. You're not seeing it. And the beauty that God has laid out before us in this revealed word. John Owen, who's a Puritan, and you think Puritan, you think oh, rigid, bored, boring, dull, dry, kind of cold. That's not it. L- listen to what he says. This is on the screen. Be fully assured in your hearts that the Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father in His love. Have no fears or doubts about His love for you. The greatest burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. What else does He have to do to show you that He loves you? He sent His Son, His only Son, to suffer and to die in your place to redeem you so that you could be adopted as His own son, daughter. But that's not all. He's done more. Galatians 4 verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is the last point. Adoption is not only something we're to learn uh, theologically, academically, and understand what the doctrine of adoption is in the scripture. But it's something we're to experience Personally. That God sent His Son so that we could have the status of sonship to be sons of God, but He sent the Spirit so that we can experience that sonship. So God, in sending a Spirit to His adopted children, places this new cry in our hearts. It says, "Ah, oh, but that closest word of affection for Dad, we say it, but it's not trite because it's true, Daddy, Father." It's how we could view and how we speak of God—that's the cry that the Spirit places in our hearts. It assures us of God's love for us. It—it it gives evidence of God's adopting grace, and so it reminds us that God no longer wears the robes of the judge as He views us, but He's now Abba, His Father. And then verse seven. There's this transition from the plural in verse six that—that—that—that He is He has. He has um, because you are sons, got to send the Spirit of Sons into our hearts, plural. And then he moves into in verse seven, it's it's singular. So he goes from this general exhortation to this specific, personal, direct declaration. He's looking eyeball to eye. This is like God putting his hands on your shoulders and saying, Listen to this. Get this. Listen. Verse 7. So you, you, eyeball to eyeball, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Isn't that great news? I mean that that's reason to give thanks to God this time of year. This is not just about the what. The what is great and we ought to tell that story and we not not to apologize for however to to the ears of of the unbelieving world and those that that deny the existence of God, they see it, they see it as crazy and this fanciful fairy tale. We say, no, this is truth. This is is, God is able and he did this. This is how it happened. But we also enter into this remembering why it happened. and Rejoicing in the love of God poured out. Sending his son to redeem us and to adopt us as his own. So how then? So we need to remember. The Galatian Christians. This is why Paul writing. He says, you need to remember you're not slaves. You're sons. Live like it. We need to remember that, don't we? Because we so often fall back into that. Same mode of thinking. Same view of God that sees him as just kind of angry. And he's just scowling, Annoyed by us. He's got to put up with this. No. How, how do adopted children of God live? How should we live? Let me just... A few things that it ought to prompt in us. Passionate praise. 1 John 3, verse 1. See, behold, listen... Behold what love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John's just exploding. And as he's writing this, we should strain our vocal cords and just belting out praises to God for his love for us and making us his children. It should result in more prayer. Jesus said, pray like this. This was radical. Our Father. So we pray to a father who is never too busy for us. Who is never too preoccupied to listen to what we have to say. No matter how bumbling we are as we say it. So our praying is not cold. It's not rigid. It's not formal. It's personal and free. and He delights in answering. And he says, if if, if Jesus said in Matthew 7-11, if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father... Who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him. So He says, ask, seek, knock. It freeze us up. Another area, mercy. As we realize the, the mercy of God, the love of God towards us, by adopting us, we should show mercy to others. One of the greatest demonstrations is what the works and the gilries are doing right now and what many of you are doing by supporting them in that. Loving the orphan. We who have known the adopting grace of God, we ought to move with love For the orphan and show that to others. And so that's certainly a demonstration. Hope, assurance. Verse seven of chapter four, if a son, then an heir through God. Because we've, because we've been adopted by God, hope is not, it's not a faint possibility. It's not a likelihood. It's, it's a guaranteed certainty. First John three, two, because beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And because we're God's children, we will never be taken from Him. We have that hope, that assurance. It should result in unity. If we're all adopted sons and daughters of God, what are we then? We're brothers and sisters. Fathers and mothers, that's how scripture talks about us. The family imagery of the church, that's just how we relate to one another. And that, that, ought to draw us together. This is, if you understand adoption rightly, it really ought to just pretty much eliminate any kind of racism or classism or sexism or any ism that divides people in the world. It ought to eliminate that in the church because we get the doctrine of adoption. It ought to cause love. 1 John 3:16 we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I mean there's so many places we could go there. Suffering it changes how we think about suffering. There's suffering now but there's glory later and even the suffering we experience according to Hebrews 12 it's 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 from a father who loves us and it's for our good. It's discipline for our good. It's not out of anger, or judgment or condemnation. It's for our good. It, it ought to affect how we pursue holiness. We're not motivated by fear of the judge and the scolding judge. but we, we want to imitate our Father. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We want, to, we want to bear the family likeness, show our family likeness in a way that of living that brings praise to our Father in heaven. It affects how we have confidence, trust. We're not anxious people, fearful people. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six twenty-five and 26, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So understanding the fatherhood of God, it changes. It, it gives us comfort and relieves our fears about the future, about tomorrow. So, this is the thing I want you to see. And just listen real quick. That, that not everyone, though, is a child of God. This is not teaching the universal fatherhood of God. There's no, there's, that does not exist. Not, he's not everyone's father. But he's the father of those who, who have faith in Jesus Christ. We have to be justified before we can be adopted. And how are we justified? By faith in Christ believing, putting the weight of our confidence in Christ and what He has done through His death and His resurrection. But there is an open invitation to be part of this family. You don't have to crawl over some bar or prove yourself to be in the family. You believe. John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God.